we went to a nursing home to do like a Christmas play type of thing. And they said that he could give the message, right? So he delivers this like hour and 15 minute dissertation <laughs> on how like Jesus didn't actually contradict this Old Testament prophecy saying the Messiah wouldn't come from this tribe. And it's like all these like hospice patients that are, this is their last day. Oh my <laughs> God. This is, it's today, maybe tomorrow. And then they're out of here. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. This. The, the example is so egregious that I'm not sure we can lay that at the feet of Calvin. This might've just been this dude. I don't know. I mean, that's pretty insane. I, I have a lot of friends who are Calvinists who would never do that. We can lay that one at uh, the feet of having a personality disorder, perhaps. I'm ready to knows? group them all together. Hello and welcome to Growing Up Christian. I'm Casey. And I'm Sam. And we're uh, reporting to you live from the battlefield. Uh, America's soul has been under attack for over a week now. Yeah, it's this been guy, that This guy, uh, Lil Nas. Lil... <laughs> I, I think it's Little. I think you, it's Little Nas. Little Nas X. I, all I know is that he's a tool of the Dark Lord. Yeah, I mean, clearly, uh, dude, <laughs> just thinking about you saying like the just pretending to even mess up his name. I was thinking about this this week, though, uh, because I feel like maybe this is a sign of getting older. Um, I think I actually typed little Nas X to somebody this week uh, or la- uh, definitely in the past two weeks before realizing like, oh, wait. That's not how they say, that's not how it's done. <laughs> I, like, I feel like it's a struggle to say even Lil, uh, Lil, he said it's Lil Nas X. I'm like, God, I feel so stupid and old, but I just want to be like, Lil Nas X. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know. why does it feel weird? Like, like you're just out of place saying Lil. Yeah. I, Whether it's, exactly. it's, it was even like back when it was Lil Kim, you know, I know. I, like I still felt weird saying it. Yeah, maybe it's because we're just both really white. That might be the problem. I think that's might be our whiteness, not so much our age, but so Caucasian. Like if I take my shirt (laughs) off, you can see my organs like a fish. (laughs) But so yeah, this this story's been a blast this week. It's been perhaps one of my favorite things that's happened on the internet in a long time. Usually when stories go viral, they get played out pretty quick. And this one didn't. This one stayed entertaining. Uh, and it's continuing to be, uh, you know, he's still going hard on Twitter and, and trolling people pretty good. And there's a lot of fun stuff that's come from this, but. Uh, it's definitely I'm, still entertaining because Lil Nas is entertaining. Like, yeah, he's hilarious, dude. He is just working these people over on Twitter and stuff. Yeah. And like, it's I don't, I don't think he's going to blink. I mean, he's just he's just sticking with it, which is exactly what he needs to do. Yeah. You know, don't apologize. Don't. Don't try to do some sort of like meet me in the middle sort of thing. Like just, you know, you put out a video. It was obviously very personal to you. Like just stand by it. And that's what he's doing. And I think, yeah. it's, I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, so like, and of course, like, so as everybody knows, the whole problem is people are saying like, it's a satanic video. They can't believe 
that it it was even made. I don't know. Everyone's really been in shape about it, and I just like I heard about it for probably like four or five days before I finally watched it. You know, I I'd see like screen captures from it, and it's like, oh, that's interesting. Like interesting take. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't even really listen to the whole song. Uh, I just heard like clips of it here or there. So when I finally sat down and listened to it. I was actually expecting to be shocked. Like my, my thought was that he put out something like really shocking and that I might be like, wow, like that's a statement. And it's certainly a statement, but not for any of the reasons that I thought it was going to be after watching it. I was just like, okay. So that was, it was kind of like reminds me of the first time I smoked weed where like, you know, as someone who abstained from it for so long, or like it was made into such a big deal. Like I was like, a a militant like they better not legalize it kid because it's just gonna ruin our generation i was like really really obtuse about it and we uh my friend jesse and i smoked for the first time together and he he was like me it was just like we were all on that same page and then we finally did it and then it was like okay that's it that's what everyone's making such a big fucking deal about it's so like not a big deal after you do it. And I, that's kind of the same feeling I had after watching the little Nas X video. You're just like, and I, we, I've been watching cartoonish depictions of Satan since I watched Rocco's modern life, you know, like no one's had a problem. Yeah, with He shows up in everything. Like your typical, like red devil with horns. Uh, the difference is like, you know, little Nas X is twerking all up on him intentionally goes down to hell after heaven's not really working out for him. But I mean, if it's like, it's a clearly satirical piece uh, given how he grew up. I mean, what did he say in like, I, I, I don't remember what, like one of his first statements about it was. Um, I did have the tweet saved here. So actually I'm just, let me just pull it up real quick. He said, uh, I spent my entire teenage years hating myself because of the shit y'all preached would happen to me because I was gay. So I hope you're mad. Stay mad. Feel the same anger you teach us to have towards ourselves. And then like later on, he's spot on. Yeah. Right. And then jokingly, he's like, y'all love saying we're going to hell, but get upset when I actually go there. Laugh my ass off. And you're just like, yeah, it's like (laughs) it. He was just like making a facetious video about what they what he's been told is going to happen his entire life and and then took it and ran with it. And like he twerks on the devil, then breaks his neck and takes his horns. And it's off. I don't know. The statement around it, I thought, was a, a, a fun, interesting take uh, and really artistic. So like when I start hearing everyone freaking out about how satanic it is, it's just like. Do you think it would be that blatant? You think Satan would, if like there's this really like uh, hooded figure, like orchestrating all this dark shit behind the scenes, that that's what he's up to? You know, like just like making gay boys make scary videos of him. It's like it's obviously going to be something more sinister than that. Why is it that Christians have such a like their? then nothing animates them as much as music because yeah. dude, there's, there's a new satanic movie every two weeks. There's so many movies about devil worship or, you know, demon possession or whatever it is, you know, right. and you hear almost nothing about that. It's like that art form we're not worried about, but music we are. And 
I, I mean, on the one hand, I guess like people are not just continuously watching a, you know, the exorcist over and over and over again, like they yeah. would a song. They almost treat music as it, like it has some sort of like hypnotic uh, magic powers to it. And that's yeah. been a thing since I was a kid. I mean that, you know, all the back masking and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, I wonder if it has something to do with, I mean, it has to maybe do with the repetition and singing along with it. Uh, I mean, cause you, you see how like, you know, religious groups and people have used music throughout all of human history to connect with uh, the spiritual. So, I mean, there's definitely a component to it that affects humans on a, a particular deep level as opposed to like maybe film. But uh, it is interesting though, that, you know, that the, the conclusions that they draw every once in a while, like a movie will pop up where they're just like going to full blown freak out mode. I, I'll, I remember when the first saw movie came out, how much of like an uproar people were in over that. I don't know if that like was any, I don't feel like I remember or, that. It was just like a, I, like a very clear, nobody should see this. That's I want to say that's when like, I really first heard the word tur- uh, torture porn. And, uh, it and then I like ended up watching that movie. It's same same thing as uh, a little everything. Apparently, everything I do that they make a big deal of, I watch it and just uh, view it, whatever, and do it. And you're like, that's it. Like the first Saw movie, I was like, it doesn't even make sense that anybody cared about this. It's it's like it's so. It's like when somebody tells you that a movie is really scary. Like if you were one of the people that didn't see Hereditary for like three months after it came out. And all you heard was just how scary it was from everybody and like unnerving and stuff. Then you watch it with these expectations that, you know, they're never going to be. I remember, you know, that movie did that with me. Not scary movie, but I remember hearing for like 10 years, people talk about how funny the Princess Bride was. Oh, yeah. Just never shut up about it. Oh, the Princess Bride so great. It's my favorite movie. And I remember watching it and just being like, "I, I, I don't get it. Like the, the expectations like ruined it for me. Like it's a good movie. I just came into it with this mindset that it was going to be something totally different. I think that's how a lot of this stuff ends up being though. I mean, what was, okay. So what was the first like, uh, quote unquote satanic or just, just something that was portrayed to be evil piece of like music thing that you ever listened to? Uh, Probably I want. I mean, it would have been. I don't know if it would have been satanic. Like there were bands that like I was like would listen to because my like, friends did. Uh, that was like, and they weren't like the bands I listened to. But you know, hanging out at friends' houses when we're all in the metal of different types was. Uh, certain bands would be played like Behemoth or. I don't know that I don't know if Black Dahlia Murder ever had. They had some like kind of dark. Yeah, they had some like satanic ritually type stuff and uh that was definitely one band that but i didn't even really pick up on it that much i i actually just revisited an album from theirs this past week and i was like reading the lyrics and i'm like this was like way darker than what people are freaking out about now like you sent me that song with like el diablo from that european pop artist and uh (laughs) that was that one's this that one's even better yeah that one's i mean it's a hacky like piece of shit really i think that music is bad like musically i don't care about it because i just don't care about pop i'm not really um maybe the kind of person who should be critiquing it based on 
how I don't know good it is within that category. But like lyrically, I was like, this is I get it. Like, it, but it's pretty metaphorical. It's just like you you could see the metaphorical direction it was going in. So I was just like, that's fine. But it is well, funny so to had... see. What's that? I'm sorry. Go go ahead. No, it's just funny it. to see people care about like oh I, and I guess it's why they care because it's hitting the mainstream people know that like exists but when it hits the mainstream like this it's very light it's not it's just not really dark it's clearly using like a a, a good versus evil metaphor uh whatever so but then you go back to like black dahlia murder and there's like uh i just i'll never suicide the, silence yeah well they were just like violent and angry but Black Dahlia Murder was like, there's one song where it's like, they're, I don't know, it's definitely referring to something ritualistic and someone drinking the blood from a child's broken neck. And you're, I'll never forget like hearing those lyrics for the first time. And they still stuck with me. To hear someone scream, drink the blood from a child's broken neck was like, oh, wow, that's pretty dark. But we kind of laughed at it too, because we were like, it's just not that serious. Like, you know that it's not serious. What'd you do with the boner? Mm-hmm. I just punched it till it went away <laughs> and asked Jesus to forgive me. <laughs> that took a second. So the Eurovision thing, if you haven't heard about it, there's protests. I don't know how wide scale they are enough that we caught media coverage of it over here, but there's people protesting this song that they sang at Eurovision, which I, I don't really know anything about Eurovision. I guess it's a competition, but I couldn't tell you who sang it. I just know that like they were really upset about it. It's called El Diablo. And the whole thing is like, I fell in love. I fell in love. I gave my heart to El Diablo. And that's as controversial as it gets to give you an idea. uh, Let me, let me just read a a little portion of verse one here. It says tonight, we going to burn in a party. We wild as fire. That's on the loose hotter than Sriracha on our bodies. Ta taco tamale. Yeah, that's my mood. Cool. <laughs> like that hurts to read. Yeah, I just want to throw crazy. my phone through the window. <laughs> Clearly satanic. Clearly. You know what I don't understand about this stuff that I, I just, I, every time something like this comes up, I don't understand like what it is that they think satanic imagery is going to do. Like there's those videos that go around once in a while. I mean, they've been floating around forever where it's like some ex stuntman from Hollywood, you know, quote unquote, top of my career, I became a Christian. And then I started to realize like how satanic everything in Hollywood was. And they're sticking all of this imagery and subliminal messaging into movies and commercials. And it's all like satanic and everything. And I just want to be like, okay, let's assume all of that is true. Like, what does that do? What do, what do you what are you so worried that that's going to do? I Is it know. having some sort of like hypnotic effect on people if they're seeing it subliminally? Uh, I think what they would probably do is like stretch out their arms and be like, "Look around, man! The world's going to hell in a handbasket." Right? It's clearly, yeah. like you know, Joe Dirt having a pentagram like etched <laughs> in his mullet as he walks by. But yeah, this this I, whole thing is it's so funny because like the same formula works over and over again. And, you know, it's I think there's a lot of people that recognize that this is a way to get attention. 
but I think that you got to give it to like little Nas X. Like he's bold enough to take the heat to, to use the formula that he know works, you know, because that's what you do. You, you stick in some stuff that's obviously going to like, uh, chap the right Christian rights, but, and then they just hype it for you like crazy. And they do this like, uh, you know, they'll make some sort of like ill-fated attempt to get it banned or taken down from radio or have the video removed because, yeah. oh, the poor children. And it's it just it's happened so many times over the years since our, you know, I've been old enough to pay attention. It happened with Harry Potter. It happened with Pokemon. It happened with Marilyn Manson, Rob Zombie. I mean, you name it. There's been so many different artists that have done some. Oh, Katy Perry. She did that dark horse performance. Oh yeah. Like I forgot a, about that. People lost their minds. They're like, Oh, this is Druids doing a satanic ritual. Yeah. It's just so nonsensical. It doesn't, I don't know. It's just laughable. I think that there's another part of this. That's probably a little more offensive to them. And that's, uh, the gay. Yeah. The gay part is, uh, I, that's why I'm like, I've been watching like, I don't know. I've I've seen so many music videos from like no one there. Look, I wasn't allowed to watch MTV, right? My parents thought it Me was neither. trash. Um, uh, and to some degree, they weren't entirely wrong that it was trash. Like, uh, but it, when it comes to some of the shows, I mean, entertaining, and that's for sure true. But I mean, the amount of videos that I would watch, like if my, I just remember my mom like taking my younger brother to baseball practice, and I'd like watch MTV because I could, and I was home. And then watch other stuff that wasn't supposed to that was pretty benign, like The Simpsons or whatever else was on. And um, I mean, it's cable television at like four or five o'clock in the afternoon. Like nothing, nothing horrible's going on at that time. It's just like stuff that in general I wasn't supposed to watch. And but I remember watching so many like half the music videos I watch. I didn't really care about music videos. I wasn't really into pop culture music, but I would turn it on to see if there was like. I don't know, something sexy going on there when it came to those music videos. And if there wasn't, I'd be like, this is boring. That was Britney Spears' heyday. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Jennifer Lopez, man, of course. Like, I'll, I'll never forget me some Jennifer yeah. Lopez music videos. But, like, <laughs> we've been seeing, like, the sexualization of, like, the not sexual. I don't even know what the right term for it. It's just, like, music videos have always been sexual. That Because people like it, and it, it sells well. And, and of course people have had problems with it, but they haven't had the backlash that, um, you know, the video of a, a gay man have, trying to do gay sex with Satan had. And I think so. I mean, there is that religious component to it. It just hits it on, hits it on too many levels. And obviously he knew that that was going to happen because he had queued up Satan shoes to go where he sold 666 pairs of Satan shoes that had a pentagram on them. Masterpiece. Reference. Yeah. And had a, 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 a you just got to like, blood like do a chef's kiss. Shoe. Yeah. <laughs> so as soon as everyone got like, got all like riled up about the song, like what, three days later, he dropped that doozy on him and it was amazing. And it made everyone even angrier. And they sold, I mean, when you think of the amount of views that his YouTube video, three quarters had, of a million dollars. It's yeah. I mean, at least like a good portion of the views and the money he's made from this is coming from the conservative Christian, right? Whatever, just sharing it endlessly and talking about it to the extent that 
everyone who would never have listened to that song originally feels the need to check it out so they know what to warn people about. Yeah, well, and that's the funny thing is like, at the end of the day, the most, you know, they can call for it to be taken down. They can, you know, scream about it being played on whatever, MTV, you name it. At the end of the day, what's more important to them, to the people that are posting this stuff, than knock, than locking this thing down and, and pulling it from the public spectrum is having their say on it. It's like, this is my chance to get on the, my soapbox Talk yeah. about how I'm protecting my kids from this filth. And, you know, we got to, th- this country is falling apart and this is why. And, you know, that's that at, at the end of the day, that's what's most important to the people that are making these posts and stuff. Yeah. And, and if they don't understand that they're driving people towards it, then I don't know. I mean, they're, they're so oblivious. Like yeah. there's not even much to say. And it, but, like- the content of the songs is like of the song. I mean, yeah, there's some objectionable content to it, but I mean, I feel like the most of the backlash has been against the visual of it, not so much the content of the, the song. Itself. Yeah. The song's fairly benign. I mean, I'm sure they don't like the content of the song either, but I mean, he says what's it's, cocaine. It's a banger friends. You know, you're not supposed to do cocaine. I mean, so maybe talking about that's not great, but all I, I've listened to it thing, like man. a good 30, 40 times. Yeah. Like <laughs> I wrote, people who want a kid's lip, there's a few songs like a, I can really barely think of other songs that like people really tried to like cancel out like this one or, or have that got the backlash it did. But some of the music that came out when I was like, a kid, I mean, that's just come out previously between like Ludacris, um, like the Ludacris putting out the song Fantasy. I'll never forget the first time I heard that. Um, and then you have like uh, Nicki Minaj putting out some of the stuff that she's like, but I, mean, I used to read through some of her lyrics with a friend of mine and just like, we would just read them out loud to each other out of context because they're just, they're funny and they're, they're dirty. <laughs> they're like uh, one of her, I just remember when I read the, like, I don't even know what song is from, but she says something about my shit's so wet. You got to paddle in. And that just makes me laugh. Like, but, and people don't like her for that. Um, you know, Cardi B has, comes out with with uh, WAP or whatever. And I mean, the themes there, like, it's funny because no one cared about Ludacris um, or half of, like, they cared in the sense that they're like, everyone needs to stay away from this stuff. But they didn't care in the sense that um, Fox News had a fucking field day with it for three weeks just to generate, you know, Well, they would just they would occasionally pick like one example out of it, but they railed against like quote unquote gangster rap all the time. Yeah. You know, yeah, as like true. a, a negative culture and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I remember like Bill O'Reilly would talk about that stuff all the time. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is the same thing there too. You know, there was like pushes to enact standards on rap music and that's not always been Christian conservatives. I mean, you know, Tipper Gore pushed for that kind of thing back in the nineties. But yeah. I think that a lot of the people that you hear piping up right now are the same people that you hear complaining about cancel culture in other contexts. And somebody messaged us on, on Instagram, you know, about a week ago when we first started posting about this saying, 
is basically asking if we thought that Christian Christians were the original like cancer culture instigators. Cancer culture. Which, <laughs> <laughs> but it's mystery. definitely true. I mean, they've been Freudian pulling that slip. stunt for a long time. And yeah. I think that uh you know, when it comes to to cancel culture, which is a big, a much bigger issue to talk about, but I think that we're all prone to doing that. And on the one hand, while I was like chastising Christians this week for getting all up on, uh, you know, little Nas X and kind of reveling in the, the controversy and stuff like that. Like I kind of found myself doing that a little bit. Like I don't, I don't want his career to end, but if you caught any of the stuff about Michael Rappaport, the comedian this week, and he got in a spat oh, with yeah. Barstool Sports and then um, published a conversation he had with an NBA player, Kevin Durant. Yeah, yeah. And the guy just, he just sucks. Like, he sucked before this. He sucked for a <laughs> long time. I don't know who his vis- listener base is, and maybe I'm just not hearing, like, the stuff that's appealing from him. But um, I've I've kind of, like, I'm, I'm totally fine if Michael Rappaport just disappears. He there was like a time last year where another comedian made some really just off-putting, gross jokes around a celebrity that had, that had died, and I mean it was awful, and people were oh, rightfully yeah. like roasting them f- for it, you know. But Michael Rappaport doxed the guy. I mean, he's got death threats pouring in and stuff, and and Rappaport like published his address, Eesh. and. So ever since then, I'm like, yeah, that guy can go away. We don't we don't need him around. But I think what what cancel culture is, and it's something that we all do in some form or another. Uh, it's it's uh, like this statement that it's someone saying like this is bad, and I don't trust normal people to understand that this is bad. So it just yeah. needs to be taken away. It's you know. I obviously can understand that this is bad and I'm not going to interact with it, but other people may not make that correct decision. So we just need to wipe it out. And Christians have done that for years with things like music and video games and all of that kind of stuff. And now people do it with other things, you know, you name it, it's applied to all sorts of things, but I think it's just a bad instinct that only makes people, it only attracts people to whatever it is that you're trying to cancel. There's things that are legitimately bad out there that shouldn't get spotlights. Little Nas X is not one of them, but there right. are things like that. And, you know, just constantly being on a soapbox about it and calling for its removal and stuff, most of the time is, I just think, is a bad instinct. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do too. I think there's, I mean, to some degree, society will, if it's truly something that shouldn't exist, not that it won't maintain itself in small pockets um but it will be kind of pushed often gets pushed out of um sometimes the problem with the cancel culture aspect of it is it it brings things into the spotlight that might have otherwise flown more or less under the radar and not quite had the following that it would have as with, well, like with the whole little right. next thing like i don't know there's definitely like um unintended consequences of it for sure i think there's oftentimes it's worth stating that if something's problematic to you know uh make your case for it and then at that point it's up to the court of public opinion to proceed and figure out kind of where that's going to go and and when they can come back if they can come back it's 
I don't know. It, it's definitely uh, it's complicated in in the I think in the category of unintended consequences for sure. Yeah, and I think that it's overall it's a good thing that there is kind of a public referendum on people and things that are just that just don't meet today's standards. And I don't think I I think people categorize things as cancel culture when they don't like the the effects that it has on certain things. Yeah. But, you know, uh, people just no longer listening to a comedian that says, you know, that has a a racist rant or something like that. Like that's not cancel culture. That's just the, the, the consequences of, of you doing a really crappy thing. Right. (laughs) You know, like there's, there's like, it's, it's two sided, but I think by all means, somebody does something awful, they should have to face the consequences of their actions. But when somebody does something that, a a small group of people think is awful and others don't like trying to impose that judgment on that person by getting them removed or whatever. I just don't think is a good way to go, but how do you, you know, there's no centralized leadership on this stuff. It's all just the, you know, it's the Twitter mob. And I think you just have to like stand by the people you think deserve to be recognized and ditch the people who deserve to be ditched. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think, yeah, I, I, I agree with that, man. I, I think before we, you know, we're kind of getting to the end of our time here, before we move on to uh, introduce our guest, I think a good way to end this here is to um, give a little tip of the hat to Ludacris for, you know, I, I mentioned fantasy earlier. So I just want to like, you know, give us a little read off from one of uh, his most memorable lines and that uh, probably of all time. It says, I want to get you in the backseat, windows up. That's the way you like to fuck. Clogged up, fog alert, rip the pants and rip the shirt. Rough sex, make it hurt, in the garden, all in the dirt. Roll around, Georgia Brown. That's the way I like to twerk. Oh, okay. I didn't hear cancel. No one really made a huge... I just, you know... (laughs) No one ever talked to me about that song, that's for sure. (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard that song. That's I. It's mind-boggling to me that you've gone your entire life without hearing that song. I feel like every eighth grader in the world was singing those lyrics as, as soon as their bedroom door closed and they were having to sleep over with their friends. <laughs> oh, Man. God. All right. So our guest coming up is Dan Koch. Uh, Dan's the host of the You Have Permission podcast. Uh, that's what he's currently working on. He's been podcasting for a number of years. Uh, we wanted to have him on because, you know, he's done a lot um, in his work with trying to find not like in a hokey sense middle ground but you know there's this hyper polarization going on in our country it's clearly not a good thing and the work he's been doing has been trying to kind of just analyze that uh, he's getting his um you know doctorate in psychology he's picked up a lot along the way he talks to a lot of smart people on his podcast uh, it's often a theology podcast but it frequently frequently drifts into politics uh since sometimes you often the two overlap as you'll see in in our upcoming conversation but this was a i loved it i thought it was a fantastic conversation and uh, i'm super excited for everyone to be able to listen to his perspective uh, on this stuff yeah a lot of fun this conversation i think was was a good exercise for for all three of us so 
Yeah. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, if you're not in the Discord already, find the links in our social, but jump in there and share some memes. It's fun. So Leave us that being a said, on iTunes. Don't forget. Oh this. yeah. Whoops. This is important. Please. Leave us a review on iTunes. That's the only place you can review podcasts, it seems. No one else has kind of figured out that that matters. Uh, so if you use Apple Podcasts or whatever it is that Apple has going on, I don't know. I use Android. Uh, just do it. Give us a five-star review if you like this. Maybe write some nice words. That's all we ask. Yep, and enjoy <laughs> our conversation with Dan Coke. Hey, everybody, we're back with Dan. Dan, thanks for hanging out with us this evening. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you have by far the coolest like podcast room of anybody we've talked to oh, yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it is my music studio, uh, which has been my day job uh, in one form or another for most of the last 17 years, but specifically for the last eight or nine years as a commercial composer. So I've got a bunch of guitars and a keyboard here that people can't see and some drums, uh, but also a bunch of shit because it's not clean. And uh, I did not opt for the video option because I'm wearing pajamas, essentially, and I uh, didn't shower today. So my hair looks weird and I'm getting a haircut next week. I just am nothing is I'm firing on zero cylinders in terms of using the visual medium. So thanks for letting me opt to audio only but that's a painting a little <laughs> yeah, picture for people way too hard on yourself you got like also, a shab shabby chic thing going my uh my the heater in this room broke so i have a space heater that i occasionally will turn on and off with this back scratcher here hey that's so nice. that too <laughs> it's just a pretty pretty janky setup down here but it's a uh, it's very nice acoustically it's got wood walls and some kind of treatment on the ceiling. It's great. That, it's nice that you have heat. I'm operating in a room that doesn't have heat and is uh, an exterior wall. So it's about 48 degrees right here. Oh, wow. <laughs> and does have a plumbing uh, pipe. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm if you hear water noises, that means that one of his kids just took it down. Yeah. <laughs> well, more likely that they pissed, you know, statistically. It could go either way. Yeah, yeah. probably right. Uh, so, Anyways, enough yeah. of that. <laughs> so we wanted to have you on, Dan, because uh, you know I'm I'm a I'm a fan of your podcasting work. I think you've been doing some really great stuff over the years. Um, you know, with you have permission, but uh, what I first started listening to was when you were doing uh, depolarize, um, polarize, right. polarized. Uh, uh, no D, no D, um, which mm -hmm. you know that was. For anyone who's who doesn't know, that was basically leading up to the 2016 election. Yeah, you can kind of give. I mean, I mean, the quick breakdown of it. Go, just give us a quick breakdown of it because I think it's important to what you know why we're having the conversation. Yeah, right yeah. Now. So it was. Um, it started right before the election. I was like, well, is there anything I can do to sort of keep Trump from getting elected? And uh, I was able to do a little trip to Nevada with some friends to go door to door. But I also was like, well, I have this podcasting platform at the time i knew that uh, bad christian would help me launch a podcast if i started one we were already talking about this other one that ended up coming out not long after called reconstruct with them and so i thought well this is what i can do so i started it initially as like a let's stop trump but then of course trump won and so then it uh, continued as like a i don't know just it was a lot about understanding so 
I recognize that things have gotten very polarized, and I recognize that before Trump took office, and I think that it's only accelerated since he became president. Uh, and so it's uh, I'm I'm dissatisfied with the kind of polarized tribalism that is the default. We might say I was dissatisfied then. I am now, uh, but I stopped doing that show because. It was just like too taxing to talk about politics all the time, especially when Trump was president, yeah. which is already just a taxing time for anybody who cares about that stuff. And so I, I paused it or I yeah, I basically stopped doing it um, to work on You Have Permission, which is what I'm doing now. But but we do still sometimes hit on some of these political issues, especially when they intersect with sort of white evangelicalism, because most of my listeners and I myself have come out of some form of white evangelical Protestantism. So, uh, yeah, that's the kind of tie-in. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I would say it's almost frequently what you're doing now is still frequently political because the overlapping of the Venn diagram of white evangelicals and Republicanism yeah. uh, in its more recent extreme form. There's almost, there's almost no daylight. Yeah. I mean, it's almost a full, it is almost a 100% overlap of... Right. Uh, white evangelicals and Republicans. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, white evangelicals are not all Republicans, but there's there's almost no white evangelicals that do not uh, vote Republican or lean Republican. It's a very small number that don't. Yeah. So, it, so in light of the work that you've been doing, obviously, you've been focusing a lot of your time over the past few years on um, trying to push against the type of tribalistic mentalities that people have and honestly even even your own because obviously it's it's pretty easy to for anyone to drift into a particular yeah. whatever camp they're they're associated with it i mean we surround ourselves with right. people like that those are the conversations we get into and before long it's just these people are a bunch of fucking idiots on that side and we've got it exactly right yep so and of course yep. i do that frequently i've definitely uh when we started this podcast we trashed a few episodes because i couldn't keep my mouth shut and as we were kind of you got real ranty. how to do this. Yeah. Someone, <laughs> first time someone gave you a soapbox, you couldn't resist. Yeah. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I sent it to a couple of my friends just like, hey, take a listen to this, see what you think. And they're like, well, the uh, the end was a little rough. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Sam was two drinks in by that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so some of the things that have gone, I, I mean, I feel like we've been noticing lately. I don't. I don't even know if it's lately. It's just been like a constant. And again, it, it's a lot of it's been related to the 2016 election. Um, politics yeah. have kind of overtaken and replaced or tied themselves so tightly to religious persuasions that it's hard to tell the difference yeah. for a lot of people. Um, I mean, maybe even including myself and it's leading to a lot. I would of say one, one helpful way to think about that, that I found is that, um, you know, I don't know to what extent this used to not be the case, but it's certainly the case now. There's a lot of evidence for this that I don't have, you know, at my fingertips, but in the polling data and et cetera, that religion is now downstream from sociopolitics. So your sociopolitical identity is determining your religious engagement. Uh, and ideally that would not be the case, right? Religion um, which whether you have it or whether you are a humanist or whatever it is, ought to be the sort of core of you, 
it should be uh, the values you hold most dearly. It should be like your ultimate commitments in Paul Tillich's language. You're the object of your ultimate concern. And so if that's how it should be, then that would inform some of your politics, right? You would go, well, I like this, but because I am a Christian or because I'm a secular humanist, I think this on this other thing. And what we're finding now yeah. is that uh, it's the opposite. So people's religious orientation is is secondary to not everybody, of course, but uh, by and large is has become secondary to their sociopolitical identity. Uh, I think you see that among religious and non-religious people. No offense, uh, Casey, but. Uh, you know, I think it's just like driving. I think that that big engine, that big sorting that we are that we are taking part in, uh, where we live, what car we drive, how we dress, what music we listen to, um, what movies we like. Uh, you know, it's all just overlapping, 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 and that ends up uh, just like when teenagers start hanging out with a new group of friends. They start to dress like those friends. They start to talk like those friends. Like. We're all those teenagers now, basically, uh, at least by default, <laughs> unless we're really careful not to be. That, that's, how it, that's how it seems to me. I, I think that's a good analogy. It's funny because if you think of that, just that, you know, leave the, the deeper ideology out of it. But like just that tendency to like assume a plug and play identity. We think of that as a teenager thing. But I mean, how many guys have you ever known that have bought a Harley and all of a sudden like they're wearing a vest on Sunday and they, you know, they got $150 Harley jeans and stuff. Like people are just prone to that. And I think that yeah. you're right. I mean, I feel like that's a big part of, of why these political philosophies have become so all encompassing is because it's not just political ideas and values. It's a community that you're a part of now you're woven into the fabric of it. Yeah. I mean, one way to think about this that I find quite plausible is that what's going on now is the human default and that actually in order to not be like this, you need to have some really robust uh, institutions or practices or habits where you end up mixing, you know, and, and I think that the pan, if, if that's true, then it would be especially true that the pandemic has made it all worse by keeping us from mixing in real life relying more and more on our social media algorithms to show us what they're going to show us, you know, all that kind of thing where it's just, yeah, I mean, but I, I, I'm a minimal to that. I think that might be what it is. I think that this might actually be the norm. And we just had a nice period of 60 or so years in the States where it wasn't the norm so much because there were all these other things that people did together, like serve in the military or go to, a mainline denominational church that included both religious zealots and pretty casual Christians, uh, a bowling league as Robert Putnam, the sociologist uh, famously wrote about, right? That by the nineties, people weren't bowling in leagues anymore. They would just go to the bowling alley with only their family or friends. Huh. And the league was a artificial, but natural way, right? To like be with 10 other people or 50 other people that you wouldn't have had beers with otherwise. And so, uh, yeah, so it's, you know, we, but we evolved to, to basically live in societies of like a max of 250, 300. And we're not, you know, like nothing about our, our biology 
is particularly well suited to live in a city like I do of 3.2 million people, uh, we have to kind of add that on. And so one way of thinking about this is just that like some of the stuff we added on successfully, uh, trust and other things and participation have eroded in those things. And so we're back to a more natural tribalism. That's one way of thinking of it. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, all that makes a lot of sense, especially in regards to the like, I mean, I, I love the bowling alley example, uh, the bowling league thing. I mean, yeah. the amount of things that I do with people who think like I don't even have any outside of I would I, honestly outside of my church, which hasn't met for over a year now. Um, that's the only access I have to people who don't think like me, uh, which is part of why I like to participate again um and and in the faith community is less about um what it does for me personally uh when it comes to reinforcing beliefs it's not uncommon for me to not agree with what i mean i could i could agree or not like it's not really of any interest to me whether or not i agree with what's being taught or said from a pulpit um it's it's more or less just the interaction with people who are willing to have conversations about these types of things and still show up to the same place every week without, you know, killing each other or defriending each other on Facebook. Yeah. So uh, I think one of the things that really like we're uh, seeing right now is like, obviously there's this explosion lately of, of deconstruction as, as it's commonly referred to. Um, and yeah. it, it makes sense. Everyone, people who leave evangelical white evangelicalism particularly go through it um but in in regards to polarization and and people setting up camp in certain places it almost feels to me sometimes like instead of that being a pathway to a new more fulfilling life um or that maybe has a little bit of nuance to it or um you know provides you with a new community or it seems like it's like a stopping point for some people now. Like I'm a, I, like the, the ever deconstructing person. Uh, we're only around deconstructing mm. people. And I, I honestly think I've noticed that more in the past 16, 17 weeks since we started even doing this, where it's like, and of course this is when the algorithms come into play that you, the aforementioned algorithms is just like, Holy shit. Almost everything I see on Instagram now, when I'm using like the, the podcast Instagram, it's like, it's just, it's only deconstructing pages. Uh, yeah. Exvangelical this. I'm like, and, and I'm obviously part of that. And I, I'm not, that's not being, dis, I'm not trying to be dismissive of it, but I think there is a real danger in, in people just setting up shop and, and trying to build a brand based on a, what should be a journey and not a stopping point. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're shooting us in the I foot. I know. Dude. I'm like, should I even be saying any of this? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah. I mean, so there are some really competing, you know, forces around that topic. Um, you know, I too am part of the deconstruction world. Uh, you know, you have permission is basically a sh- like in the intro, I say like, essentially if you've been shut down for your faith questions, here's a place where you won't be. And that is a big reason why people deconstruct is that they have some honest questions they bring it to some authority figure or person in their life or church. They get shut down and then they go, huh, that's weird. I just had a regular question. Why? Like it's a red flag, right? And then that begins whatever search it is that they have to go through on whatever topic it starts with. And that always changes from person to person. Uh, 
and so, yeah, like I, I'm in that world too. And I'm definitely a part. I mean, I, I, for, for goodness sake, I, I co-created a website called so you're So I'm clearly a part of that ecosystem. Uh, but the brand building is a unique, it's almost like an influencer culture, influencer marketing thing that is new. That's just like fairly new in general. It's, you know, it's what less than 10 years old in terms of internet culture and social media culture. Um, and it's, and it's really become so ubiquitous. And so there's a way in which sometimes it's hard to tell if somebody or some podcast or some handle or whatever is like trying to help, or if they are trying to become influencers, uh, if they think that becoming an influencer is helping, which maybe they do think that maybe some people, especially I could imagine someone maybe 10 years younger than me, I'm 37 thinking that becoming an influencer is how you help people, you know, maybe, maybe more like a 20 year old. I don't know who would think that, but you could imagine a Gen Z or thinking that, you know, just innocently thinking that, well, that's how you change the world. You become an influencer, which is like, uh, you know, anathema to me <laughs> as a old millennial. Um, but like you, so it gets, it gets complex. It gets, and there's, so there's competing forces there, right? There's, I want to grow my brand. If I grow my brand, more people will hear the message. I believe in the message. So that's a really innocent version of it. Another version is, I don't care who ends up where I would like to be more popular. That would be a, a bad version of it. Many people are probably somewhere in between, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It's, it's, there's a part of that now that's just sort of, I mean, it's just part of our culture now that like, there's an instinct almost like bred into you through social media that like, if you, if uh, you throw enough crap, people start to listen, you know? Yeah. And, and you like, learn quickly, implicitly the kind, like the algorithm teaches you very fast what works yeah. and what gets likes and clicks and comments. It doesn't take long. I mean, it's like, honestly, I'm sorry to rabbit trail, but I have a one-year-old right now. And there are things that he will now learn in one or two tries. My sister-in-law taught him how to climb backwards down a step, you know, to put his butt there first and his legs down first and then to turn. And he learned it in one try. And that's kind of how I feel like these algorithms are. It doesn't take that many to go, oh, this got five and this one got 70. Like, okay, I get the message. Yeah. I mean, even for, it's like, oh, I posted this thoughtful thing about how I feel about what's going on. And then I posted a right. meme that just shits all over the enemy. And yeah. which one gets the most <laughs> like that? Exactly. <laughs> Very yes. cool. Dude, it's like, the, it's like uh, YouTube thumbnails, like a oh, normal looking thumbnail. Yeah. Fine. But like the ones that get yeah. brought up all the time are the people being like, it's yeah, like the big faces. My most controversial video ever. <laughs> yeah. You know? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Well, and some of that is just some of that's just uh supply and demand. There's way more supply than there ever was before. So how do you choose what to click on? And you know, there's a whole science, there's a whole marketing science to clickbait that people have made millions and millions of dollars figuring out. Yeah. And so these are these are the forces that some of the forces that we're up against. I think like one of the things that's um, that's caused some of the controversy, it's 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 part partly driven by what we're talking about. But I 
feel like there's there's actors within all these different communities, whether you're talking about politics or religion or whatever, but they market anger. And oh, yeah. that was one of the things, you know, as, as I was like coming to terms with the fact that I didn't believe in those things anymore and that I wasn't a part of the church really anymore. Uh, it was really hard for me. It took years for me to learn to control that anger, to learn how negative it was for me. And then to like, even knowing that, like, it took a while for me to learn how to like temper that and bring it down a notch. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of voices in all of these different communities that like it, they're driving clicks by making, by, by marketing that anger to people who, you know, it feels good to be angry for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, a, it's addictive. And I, I feel like that might be part of like what you're talking about, Sam, like, this becomes yeah. a a uh, a place to park because partly because of that anger that you're never over that anger unless you choose to you know really address it and and go the other direction yeah it's like uh no social media account is incentivized for you to work through your anger in therapy <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't help them, right? Uh, except, except maybe some accounts that are about you know true wellness or you know like you can imagine an account that that was that, but like a shit talking meme account is not incentivized by you becoming a healthier person and dealing with your anger, Casey. Right? Like that's not that's not going to help their bottom line. Fox News is not helped by that. I would argue MSNBC is not helped by that. Uh, those companies make their money on keeping the flames of outrage as alive as possible. Now, do I think MSNBC is as at fault as Fox? No, I do not. I'm just simply saying I'm pointing out a commonality between them as cable news that really gives red meat to the base. They give a, they give the people what they want, and what the people want when they turn on cable news is outrage. And if they can't have regular outrage, they'll settle for faux outrage. Uh, and that's and cable. I mean, <laughs> like, I think uh, cable Mr. news head getting a vagina. I think mis, I think <laughs> yeah. cable news is probably the worst offender of anything. And then after cable news, you get certain blogs and websites, and you know you go down from there. Certain Twitter accounts, um, but there's something, and I don't understand this science very well, but. There's something neuroscience-y about what's going on there. Like it's activating a part of our brains that is super primal and very powerful. And yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm beyond my own sort of knowledge base here. So I'll, I'll stop. Yeah, that's true. I, I went to the gym this morning and they always have Fox News on. I yeah, went to the gym. Well, Yo. Just so you, yeah, yeah. Uh, you want me just, to read you my calorie count? <laughs> I was just getting swole down at the gym today. <laughs> Pretty much just sweat on an elliptical for 45 minutes and then I can eat what I want for the day. But uh, uh, We've all been there, Casey. I live in Kansas and in Kansas, Fox News is on at the gym mm-hmm. every time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we just had this horrible shooting. We've got the stimulus checks coming out. There's like so much going on. Yeah. Every break where they went to commercial, they talked about somebody taking a picture of John Kerry not wearing a mask on a plane. <laughs> like it was right. catastrophic, you know, yeah. because uh, 
they got to point out the hypocrisy. It's 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 literally a product that people are paying for. And you have to just like a restaurant has to make their Reuben the same way every time because people pay twelve ninety nine for that Reuben. It's got to be good. Fox News has to give them the same product every time to, to yeah. whatever degree you can. Uh, and, and that's just, a, you know, to the extent that it's a consumer product, you're going to have you're going to have forces like that. And so it's it's either up to government or other bodies to regulate that or it's up to consumers themselves to, you know, not get a big gulp every day, even though it's tasty. Right. So it's <laughs> it's very analogous to food, I think, unhealthy food. Which I, as you guys what, what can see in the video, am very clearly have a weakness for. Did I say I went to the gym this morning? <laughs> <laughs> Did I mention? I, I think yeah. there's an irony to, um, I mean, as I've, I, again, I'm not trying to be dismissive of the, anyone who's who's trying to build a, you know, a, a helpful platform to, you know, address the types of issues that people are trying to deconstruct. I think that's a, there's a space for that. I think there's a reason there's a space for that. That's good. So I, it's not just like a carte blanche overall criticism of anyone doing that. Obviously I'd fall yeah. into that category as well. Um, but the, I, what's super ironic to me though, is like the response to this trend um, uh, uh, is is almost making it worse. Um, you know, so one of the things I, I, a couple of weeks ago that happened was, um, you know, the gospel coalition published, uh, they talked about publishing a book on deconstruction. And I, I, I went through what the chapter breakdown is and everything like that. And of course it's addressing all the hit pieces, whether it's like sex, racism, uh, those are the only two that really stuck out to me, but all 13 chapters or whatever were like, yeah, Okay, I see what they're yeah. doing here, and they, the, the hot topics, yeah, right, and yeah. the way that they're building the blo- like, kind of laying the foundation and building on top of it, yep. and it's, mm-hmm. you know, for someone who's gone, kind of came out on the other side, I, not that I, uh, not that I've self-actualized, but in some way, I'm like, I've made my peace with where I'm at. So looking at the way yeah. that they break it down, it's just it's obviously methodical and well thought out, and you can't deny that the intelligence behind some of the people who are putting these materials together. Oh, yeah. Um, but what they talk about, it's like a, a book to it's about a more robust, it basically deconstruction should lead you to a more robust faith if you're doing it right. And the backlash to that was really mm. like bad, obviously. Yeah. Um, right. So there it's weird that th- to see them, especially robust as defined by yes, the neo-Calvinist gospel coalition, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. because, because that, that crew, you know, there's a lot of more conservative, Obviously, there, there's, by the way, there's far more traditional conservative Christians than there are deconstructed ones, progressive ones in America. Um, but there are various sort of conservative factions. But the neo-reformed camp is, you know, I don't, hard to compare, but like one of the more, one of the worst offenders in terms of assuming that their slice of Christianity is Christianity. Yes, they're they're they seem to be, in my in my opinion, particularly blind about that and particularly uninterested in like what Catholics or Orthodox believe or Anabaptists believe, you know, there. And and maybe some of that I'm totally speculating is a consequence of a really strong election theology that like, well, I mean, we're fucking in. Right. So whatever, 
whatever we shit out is probably gold because <laughs> God could have sent us to hell, but we know we have the blessed assurance that we're in. And that, whereas, you know, a more Arminian Methodist stance of like, yeah, people have to respond to the gospel and we're sort of equally sinful. Like what doesn't lead to as much uh, of that kind of hubris. That's, I have not shown that, nor have I seen that shown with research. Uh, but that would be an interesting question to try and research of if there's like a natural hubris that comes with Calvinism. I don't know, especially neo-Calvinism, yeah, it, uh, which is stronger in some ways than Calvin himself. Yeah. And then what would come first? Like I, I keep doing this with all facets of faith right now or whatever it is that people are going through. And it's like. So are, are Calvinists, are, do they subscribe to that type of theology because they, because they're naturally inclined to have that hubris, therefore a theology that aligns with that type of hubris functions well for them? What's, Chicken and egg, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is- That's a great question. It's actually, it was uh, my first idea when I was considering getting a, a psychology doctorate was to do that as like my dissertation, like- personality type and theological belief as i got into it it's yeah. it's actually a very difficult thing to measure <laughs> um and i ended up kind of pivoting and going towards spiritual abuse which we don't have to talk about today unless you want to but uh it, it was it's, it's such an interesting question that i've thought about it and i've even helped a buddy who i think did this for a project in his psychology program uh, just a smaller research project correlating like big five personality traits and various theological traditions to see if there was any, like I'm fascinated by that stuff. I'm, I'm really interested in where, where does it come from? Where does our affinity for things come from? Cause there are options. I mean, unless it's just yeah. the church you're born into, then obviously the answer is you were born into it. Other than that, where, where else does affinity come from? I think I've never really thought about it in those terms, but I feel like that that has always kind of lingered in my mind too about Calvinism especially. I mean, it seems to be a very certain type of person who becomes a hardline Calvinist, you know. Like I had a youth pastor that introduced us to Calvinism and for him it was like being 100% completely right about everything yeah. was so important to him. Like that was, that was critical to the point where like, you know, the, we went to a nursing home to do like a Christmas play type of thing. And they said that he could give the message. Right. So he delivers this like hour and 15 minute dissertation <laughs> on how like Jesus didn't actually contradict this old Testament prophecy saying the Messiah wouldn't come from this tribe because of this and the, you know, the woman's role in traditional Jewish family structure and blah, 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 blah. And it's like all these like hospice patients that are, this is their last day. Oh my God. <laughs> this is, it's today, maybe tomorrow. And then they're out of here. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. This. The, the example is so egregious that I'm not sure we can lay that at the feet of Calvin. <laughs> this might've just been this dude. I don't know. I mean, that's pretty insane. I, I have a lot of friends who are Calvinists who would never do that. We can lay that one at uh, the feet of having a personality disorder, perhaps. I'm ready <laughs> to group knows? them all together. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a difference between thinking about someone's individual story and journey 
and then kind of the more top level, like averaging it all out trend stuff that, that we've been talking about. And I just think that that's sometimes it's important to mention that because there can be people for whom uh, they were never even able to feel anger because of the way how much they were gaslit every time they would start to be angry or have questions or something. And so it's not only cathartic, but actually therapeutic toward their own health that they have a season where they can be angry about things that they should be angry about. Um, and I just, you know, I want to be clear that nothing that I'm saying here is like universally applied to everyone all the time, right? It's not, it's like, uh, I would hope though that eventually, you know, anger doesn't dominate. Like that's not a good place to be. Uh, and yeah, so I don't know. I just feel like I probably should have said something like that at the beginning, knowing what we were getting into, but I forgot to. So saying it now. Yeah, that's a good point. Anger serves an important purpose, yeah. you know, in this whole process. I think for some people, and I think me for a little while, like I almost like you almost get a dopamine rush when you're, you know, high on the on your horse about a particular issue. And I think that can be addictive. It's it's normal and and reasonable and and somewhat healthy to be angry about certain things. It's just is it part of the way that you process that thing so that you can move you can progress. Right. So there's, I, I've been noticed Casey and I were recently watching a, um, a YouTube video and with, um, Alyssa Childers, 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 I forget. Childers. Childers yeah. How you say it. Alyssa Childers. Yeah. Um, and yeah. now actually I know you on a, a recent episode of yours kind of went over a video of hers, but, um, the one we watched was she did an interview on her podcast with, uh, John Cooper from mm -hmm. skillet. Is that the skillet yeah. guy? So he is, Yeah, I think that's her biggest episode. I haven't, I haven't watched or listened <laughs> Shocking, to it. Shocking. Uh, because it's, it's, I mean, that's the type of stuff that makes for big episodes. Um, and well, people like a, a name or a band they've heard of. I mean, it, that's true on my show too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that yeah. that definitely helps, but he has a very, um, uh, strong stance on what, on the types of people who are, are going through these types of deconstructions. And uh, one of the things that we've been talking about is how there, there seems to be a, I don't know the guy, uh, but there's something that seems a bit disingenuous about having those types of conversations and making such hard line stances on a podcast. That's for people who already agree with everything that you're saying. <laughs> like there's not a lot of nuance conversations going on there as far as i can tell and to to have that like type of response towards people who are obviously going it's very it's a very dismissive response uh to what people are going right. through and the questions they're having and it's kind of has this get over it vibe we're just right um which is like they're so they're like they're they're just really you know as i kind of mentioned before but they are creating they're creating an even bigger space for the thing that they're trying to prevent and i i keep thinking about mm. what it means to like what to use a type of like a platform to to be an influence like everyone's trying to influence right so john cooper has this idea of what's correct and he's going on this podcast and he's, he wants to use this platform to influence people back into a right relationship with god as he understands it and i'm I'm only, I, at least I'm convinced that the people who are responding to his message positively already are either a fan or agree with that type of spiritual disposition. 
while everybody else is like, fuck you, asshole. Like what? You don't get it. Yeah, But is that, is that different than other media? I mean, how many episodes do you listen to a week or what's your percentage of podcast episodes that you listen to where your opinions on the world are, are genuinely challenged by a worthy competitor? Yes. So actually that, that is that that's what I'm getting at. It's, yeah. I, I mean, mean I have... for me personally, it's, it's 50, it's 10% maybe. I mostly listen to movie podcasts about movies. I like, and the people on them <laughs> like them too. And I get to hear them talk about how they like a thing that I like. And if I listen to faith right. podcasts, it's usually my friends who have progressive podcasts. The The closest I get is listening to like Ezra Klein interview conservatives on his show. And then they disagree. And I'll find myself somewhere in between, depending on the topic, the two of them. Uh, generally closer to Ezra Klein, but you know, so that's like the one thing where I'm challenged. Uh, but mostly I don't listen to podcasts, read books, watch movies, talk about things that I don't agree with. That's not a habit of mine because it it's, it's very mentally and emotionally taxing to do that. It's like, yeah. if I was going to have, uh, for instance, if I was going to schedule a conversation with, uh, Alisa, which I've tried to do and she graciously declined. I would schedule that shit for 10 AM <laughs> because that's when my brain works best. I would not schedule it for 3 PM when my brain doesn't work very well and I can't get anything done. Like it's hard to, it's hard to even listen to that stuff uh, because again, we're not evolved for that. We're not used it's to it's work. It's work to do diplomacy. It's work to, reach across any sort of line. So I'm just pushing back on that particular aspect of your criticism. I'm not really sure that sure. I myself am much different on that, on that score. So that's a fair criticism. Yeah, no, it is. And I think, but what I'm really trying to get, and I accept that criticism, but I think what I'm trying to get at is that what, and including all the spaces that we're a part of what, what they're doing is having conversations about it what they and we, not just they, like what we're all doing is having conversations with people about things that we want to have conversations about. So are, are we yeah. really, I, I guess my question is because there's a fear of influence, right? Uh, on the left, um, you know, there, there's a fear of influence from the right on the right. And everyone's kind of responding yep. to that on these media platforms. And so really, yeah, for how afraid do you get if somebody tells you, just bought my first Jordan Peterson book. Yeah. What, what kind of flares up on the back of your neck, right? <laughs> right. You don't want them to be influenced by him. You don't want them going down that road, right? So we all, that's just a human thing. Yeah. So I guess what I'm wondering is like, if I, and maybe you could just, even if you just want, maybe you haven't had like a, a huge thought on it, but like with everyone building out these spaces, are we, are we just creating spaces for people who, who at a, at whatever level they're at, like for I'll use myself as an example. When I started having questions about certain things, what did I do? I, I didn't when I didn't get the answers from the people who were in my life at that time, whether it was the churches mm -hmm. I was involved in or at Liberty University, whatever it was, I went I had to go outside that to get the answers I was looking for. So is it only right. like if people are asking the questions, are we just building out spaces for them to find it 
find a different perspective or are, are people really like actively influencing people to do one thing over the other? And I mean, you're obviously the one pursuing a degree in psychology. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. <laughs> a master's. I, uh, nope. Sorry. Yeah. Doctor. I don't want to. A doctor. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> so I think that I think of it kind of like a bell curve. I imagine most of your listeners have seen a bell curve. Um, it's a bell curve distribution, right? So it, it's highest in the middle and it slopes down and there are these kind of long tails at the end. Most of our interactions fall in the, in the fat middle, right? They are things that we're comfortable with, but sometimes, uh, those aren't enough. And that's what happens when people deconstruct their faith, for instance, and then they have to go out to either side of the curve or whatever, something that's not in the fat middle. And they have to try that out. They'll only go some distance past whatever the demarcating line is of the middle. They're not going to go a, a, a Southern Baptist who is starting to deconstruct is not going to listen to a Wiccan podcast, right? They're not going to go right, to the yeah. metaphysical bookstore in their town. <laughs> They're not going <laughs> to fucking do that. What they'll do is they'll be like, oh, maybe I'll read a Rob Bell book or like, I've heard of this guy, Brian McLaren, or they might even not even go that far. They'll just follow Russell Moore on Twitter because he's against Trump. So it's always a matter of like, like there are psychic limits. There are emotional and mental limits to what feels safe to us at any given time. So when I say I'm 90% listening to the stuff that doesn't challenge me, but I'm 10% listening to stuff that does challenge me. And I think that that's about right. I'm not saying that I do it right. I'm just saying somewhere in that vicinity is like sustainable. When I don't know if you guys remember this, but when deconstruction is really rolling, when you're like full speed ahead, that's not sustainable because too much of your life is up for grabs. Too much of your uh, foundation is shaky and you just can't do it. You can't operate that way. So eventually you have to settle into something where most of the time you're not challenging your core assumptions about the meaning of life. We just can't do that all day. We can't. So I think that the, the proportion is fine. I don't think there's anything immoral or lazy about only challenging yourself with some, you know, 10 ish, whatever the percentage is. Right. Um, then we're talking. So then the question is like, okay, so different spaces, and I got I get this idea from I heard James K. A. Smith give this comment at a conference one once. He's a, a philosopher, an author, and he said, you know, he used his hands to sort of demarcate a couple clicks out from him. So he's like, I can influence people two clicks from me on the left or on the right. You, you in the audience, you're three clicks from me on the right, and you can influence people one click from me on the right and five clicks from me on the right. Because everybody's got, they can, they can influence people to some degree from where they're at. And then you need the person in your orbit to reach the next person that's outside your orbit. That's just how it is. I think that's just how we're built that. And it's probably actually a very good mechanism that is built into us to not massively change things very quickly because from an evolutionary perspective, uh, that's not going <laughs> to, I mean, honestly, even from a living today perspective, 
there's a lot of upheaval. Those of us who have gone through a particularly strong deconstruction know the feeling of that upheaval, how painful it is, how disorienting it is. Uh, you, you just can't live there. So I think that, I don't know, that's the language that I would use to describe what you're talking about. I don't know if I quite, yeah. quite answered your question. Yeah. No, oh, I, I love that. I, it actually reminds me of something a friend of mine told me. I have a friend who started, helped found a, an activist organization in Uganda who I actually really want to talk to on the, the podcast at some point. But he, you know, as an activist fighting, you know, Ugandan government oppression, that's kind of what their whole organization was about. It's called Solidarity Uganda. Mm-hmm. Anyone who wants to look it up can. Um, he was talking to me about something similar, which he probably learned. I mean, which he had learned from, I mean, obviously that kind of information got passed down at some point, but he, he he talked about something similar in that, like, he's like, like when it, when it comes to political opponents and and trying to shift the shift, uh, the people's movement, when it comes to mobilizing people politically, it's just like, you're not going to you're not going to change somebody's mind who's like the complete polar opposite of you. All you like what you're trying is right. you have he, he referred to it as like you if you have your like your your passive allies, your active allies, your passive enemies, and your active enemies. And it's like the active enemies, yeah. all you want to do, you just want to move everybody over one point. Move your active enemies yep. to passive, move your passive to oh, to neutral, move neutral yeah. to passive allies. Like- and I was like, oh yep. my god, that's like stop. So it's like stop wasting your. You know, it's, it's such a waste of breath and time to deal with changing the minds of people who are really just full blown against everything that you stand for. It's just they yep. call that like the Overton window. Yeah, that might be specifically political policy related. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Overton window is similar. I think I think Overton window is like what is generally acceptable to to talk about. You know, in in society, sort of like how far left or how far right does it get? These are the things we're all kind of collectively considering, but maybe a better way to think about the Overton window is that there are multiple Overton windows depending on what tribe you're in. So like reparations is like the Overton window has shifted on reparations amongst Democrats. Now something like 50% of Democrats are, are in favor of cash reparations of some sense to, to descendants of slavery. And in 2002, I, I just heard this today on a podcast on the 538 podcast in 2002, that was 17% or 20% or something. So that's moved a lot wow. in less in about in less than 20 years. But if you were back in 2002, it's like, you're not going to get, you're not going to get that to a hundred percent. You're not going to get that to all Democrats. You do what you can at the time. And it just seems to be a rule of human psychology. This is one of the reasons hmm. that I am more sociopolitically moderate is that I think that ultimately the way you get elections won, which leads to getting legislation passed, is that you move enough independent or lean right people into your column to get you over the threshold for, for instance, a Biden presidency. And it's not like Biden is the savior of the world, uh, but it's not like any climate change or prison reform or DACA, uh, you know, care, immigration reform, ICE reform, um, whatever. Think about whatever you want to do. Uh, vaccine distribution money. None of that was going to happen if Trump won again. So even though I'll never get my total druthers from Biden as someone to the left of Biden, at least it's like the only way I'll get any of them 
And so now some people will say, yeah. just let the whole thing blow up and then we'll have a revolution. And I <laughs> yeah. don't, I don't find that compelling. Some people find that compelling. Bernie or bust. I don't, I, right. I personally don't find that compelling. I don't think that that is a very realistic take. I get it. And, and maybe someday I'll change my mind. But the, anyway, that's just to tie it a little bit back to the depolarized stuff, which is like most of my depolarization efforts are in service of the left. R really? Like that's where I'm coming from. I, I am like a 90% liberal policy guy. The only things I'm more conservative on policy wise are uh, abortion. I am like a moderate pro-life person and religious liberty which even though I don't, I'm not the type of Christian who needs the religious liberty protections. I still think that they're very important for people of all faiths. And I think that the left, my side tends to, tends to not take them very seriously because of all the pain and discrimination that uh, people on the left have suffered from uh, fucked up religious people. And I get that, but I still find myself there. So my depolarization, my bridge building, my moderateness is in the service of getting left-leaning policies enacted. And what's funny is I just, I get way more shit from people to my left than people to my right. And uh, it's like, okay, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure what to do at that point. And we can disagree. That's fine. I just, that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, and, and the same thing would go to tie it back to progressive Christianity. It's like, look, if you think that white evangelicalism has perverted Christianity, to something that is not like Jesus, uh, you can either kiss it goodbye. Um, but if you think that that's a problem because you like something about Jesus, then you might consider convincing to the extent that you can some white evangelicals to change some, some amount at a time, you know, uh, or another, I'll stop after this talking. Another application of this would be, you know, I'm, I'm going into um, spiritual abuse research. Now the goal of spiritual abuse research is not just to know things about spiritual abuse. It is to reduce spiritual abuse. How do we do that? Where are the churches that are abusing the most people? Well, it's more conservative churches by and large and that have like no safeguards, right? So Ravi's dead, so that helps. Oh, we could talk about Ravi if you want. That's one <laughs> one guy down who was doing a hell of a lot of spiritual abuse. Um, yeah, he's not really. Like, I mean, he's dead. Like it would have felt a little bit better if anything came out happened before he died. Yeah, it is a bit of a <laughs> it. It is a bit a little bit annoying that he didn't have to face any of that while he was alive. Uh, but. Uh, Anyway, so like what you could just say, well, the best, and some people say this who are interested in spiritual abuse, the best thing is just get all the people out of all the churches and then we'll stop spiritual abuse. I think that that's naive personally. And I think that that would cause a lot more yeah. problems that are unforeseen. So I'm more of the mind of like, how can I work with conservative Christians to my right theologically on reducing spiritual abuse? That is the way short of people leaving the church, which maybe they'll do, and maybe that is the right thing. But in the meanwhile, I would like to reduce it in the churches that do exist that have X number of people already going to them. So that's another framework for thinking about this stuff. 
Well, I think like like I work in sales and in the in the line that I work in, you know, we run into a lot of people who have very strong opposing opinions about what we do. Mm. And my I've sat through so many sales trainings and all of these different things, you know, and and my sales philosophy when it comes to trying to make a cold call or something like that comes down to whatever room I go into, I'm going to be the most reasonable guy in that room. Mm-hmm. And if nothing else, if there's no way I'm going to convert this guy to, to wanting to buy our product, at least I'm going to soften his opinions about me. And when you talk about it from a change perspective, it doesn't matter if you're talking about politics, religion, anything. And I think this is especially true of me. I've brought it up before, but um, there's very few things that I've changed my minds on over the years that were directly the result of a good argument. Right. There's plenty of good arguments for all sorts of things, you know, but the things that ultimately like changed my mind about like my faith uh, helped me understand, you know, different sides of the political aisle and stuff like that is, you know, I found people that I grew to trust that had opinions that were different than mine. Yep. And, you know, for me, a lot of it was, you know, I, I listened to a lot of podcasts and, you know, people like, uh, like Joe Rogan, why is Joe Rogan's podcast so huge? Is it entertaining? Yeah, it's entertaining. Does he talk to a lot of cool people? Sure. But I think a big part of why he holds so much weight right now in terms of politics and all of these other things is because whether you agree with that guy or not, like me, I was drawn to him, I think, because I felt like I could trust him to just say what he thought. Also and, the gym, you know. Well, yeah, Being I mean, a we're fitness nut. just a gym rat, you know, like me. <laughs> no, but he that that is uh, I think he has successfully presented himself that way. I, I don't I'm not saying I doubt him. I, I'm not saying I doubt his sincerity. But yeah, he's um, yeah, he is himself on that show. And some people just find that, I think, so refreshing. I think that's a big part of the draw. Like you see so many like during the uh, the runoffs and stuff leading up to the election you see so many people who are kind of traditionally middle of the aisle maybe even lean to the right that were drawn to like bernie sanders and i I felt like i was in that camp you know i'm pretty i'm more conservative politically than than probably either you two you know but i liked bernie if nothing else for the simple fact that like I felt like that guy was telling me what he actually thought when he was on 100%, stage. hundred percent. He knows what I, he believes. Yeah. And I will settle for a genuine person that believes differently than me, than a, a Ted Cruz. Who's just this slimy jellyfish <laughs> and a Zodiac killer. And you know, it, his dad, like, his dad was <laughs> the Zodiac killer. That's a weird story. Why don't you deep dive him next? I'll listen to that one. Gosh, no, thank you. (laughs) No, I I think that, yeah, I think that you're, I think you're onto something there. And I think that there's a real, um, we have a real crisis of a lack of trust in institutions and a desire for authenticity in public people. Uh, And a lot of times the incentives for politicians, for pastors, for other people in positions of power it, the incentives are away from authenticity because uh, yeah. authenticity would jeopardize something about what they're trying to accomplish for themselves. And actually, 
I wanted I wanted to say this too earlier and, and forgot to bring it up that like, you know, uh, a lot of these people who are building platforms and stuff, I understand that like they're also trying to make a living. And I went a different route. You know, I'm going to be a, a doctor of psychology. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to make plenty of money. Uh, that is a very high paying job. And I will figure out, <laughs> I have a, a well-paying job currently and I'm going to another well-paying job. So I don't need to build a brand to support my family. And if I did, I would probably have a different calculus about the stuff that I'm doing. And so I don't want to judge people on in that sense. Right. Because I I'm not I'm privileged in that in that way. And I recognize it. Um, but you also do have to think about when someone's job is on the line. It's worth thinking about their incentives uh, because they might not be incentivized to tell you the truth. Uh, and you don't have to think that they're evil because of that. But you should think that you're less likely to hear the truth because of it. Yeah, I think we all, everybody has biases, you know, and it's. But biases are different than incentives. So biases are often unknown, right? Uh, Freakonomics guys did a really great study around realtors. So realtors, when they are selling their own homes, leave them on the market for something like 30% longer than their clients' homes because when they're selling their own home, Every extra 10, 20 K really matters to them. It goes straight in their pocket. It's 10 or 20 K more they're making. But when it is their client's home, they theorized 10 or 20 K for the realtor is like a few hundred bucks. Their incentive is to get it sold and get another house sold. They're not going to hold out for another $300. They want a new listing so they can get $5,000, right? So the incentives of the realtor, if you follow that, you can go, well, now my realtor is kind of saying we should take this offer, but I understand that his incentive is X and Y. And so that is a powerful way to think about, uh, it's, it's sometimes a complicated way, but it seems to me to get at a lot of truth behind situations. So this Instagram account, this podcaster, this person selling their book, this politician, whatever, what are their incentives, you know, and then control for that. And then when you find people like Joe Rogan is interesting because whatever his incentives are now are probably different than when he started. Now his incentives are probably be the same because it's really fucking working. He just, you know, he sold his half ownership of his show for a hundred million dollars, whatever to Spotify and now can do whatever the hell he wants for the rest of his life. So maybe he doesn't have any incentives anymore is one way you would think about that. Maybe you think so it, it can get complicated, but incentives are when I try and talk to people who are really caught in partisan media loops, you know, on the left or right, I try and I try and get them to think about incentives. It's often very hard to get people to think that way. It's not a natural way to think. It's taken me actually quite a long time to, to and it makes you kind of cynical, which is a sad byproduct of it as well. I guess it's like one of those things. It's, it's almost like a, a discipline to think about things in those terms because it is tedious and it doesn't always, it's not like a feel good thing to recognize that like someone is incentivized to feed you 
something, but it's something you should be aware of. It might not yeah. even be wrong for that person to do that. Doesn't make it wrong. It, right. Sometimes incentives and good things for the world line up. Yeah. That's you're great. paying the realtor to sell your house quick. Right. right? So but you need to recognize that his idea of what a price should be, it may not be in your best, best yeah, interest. You can push back on your realtor and leave it up for two more weeks. And you know what? He's going to be fine. Like that you can, you can get around the incentives and, and have a good outcome, right? It's not a death sentence. It's just recognize it. Now, do you still want a realtor? In most cases, you probably still want a realtor, but just what are the incentives? So do you need to read the news? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's good to know the news. What are the incentives of this particular publication, this particular show, this particular host? That can just help you control for it. Yeah. You hear about, I mean, I think you frequently hear, I mean, not frequently enough, but uh, enough times where you would hear of maybe a pastor reconsidering. I actually had this conversation with my, with my dad not too, too long ago um, when we were, if we were kind of talking about the similar concept of incentives and it was like, I, I just asked him, I was like, dad, if, you know, if you're, if the pastor of your non-denominational evangelical church had shows up on Sunday and says, you know, I, I've been really considering this for the past few years, praying as much as I can about it, like really thinking and, and listening to what God has to tell me about um, LGBTQ relationships and, and where their places in the church. Yeah. And I've really, I've really come around on it. And I really believe that, that God's telling me that this is something that we need to, that, that this is something we need to be okay with as a, as a church community. I was like, what, what would happen? And, and of course he would lose his job, you know, like yeah, the, he'd get fired. And yeah. so even, even our, I mean, our religious institutions are, are a big inhibitor of, you know, they, dis, they but I have a friend who works at a liberal mainline church and isn't sure whether he's affirming and has the opposite Interesting. incentive. It, you know, it's just the way it is, right? Like, and, and I think that's probably less common. I would say sure. it's definitely less common. There are fewer of him than the your, your dad or whatever, that conversation, right? There are more people, because the, the winds are changing on that issue, there are more people in that yeah. position. But the the tension is the same. Yeah, the problem still right? plagues religious institutions based on the type of institution that it is. Right. Or the type right. of uh, faith persuasion. So this is, we don't have to talk about this, but I think it's super interesting to think about. Um, as someone on the left, and this is something we have to be careful about not to pat ourselves on the back too much, because what we realize when we go down these roads is that our own opinions, when they happen to be on the right side of history or fill that in with whatever other phrase you like, um, what percentage of that is like the hard work we've done and what percentage of it is like we happen to be living in a time and place surrounded by the kind of people who, you know, uh, encouraged us to think a certain way. Like if I were everything else about me were the same but I was born in Alabama in 1840. Would I have been against slavery? Yeah. You know, what percentage of Alabamans born in 1840 were ever against slavery? 
mean, I don't know the number. It's not big. Hmm. Is that because 90% of Alabamans born in 1840 were pieces of shit? No. <laughs> like, that's a silly, that's a, that's an insane explanation right. for how <laughs> things change over time. So we, now, do I think slavery is wrong? Fuck yeah, I do. And do I think that uh, God thinks that gay sex is sinful? No, I don't. So I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to have been born in a time where I could reasonably and with enough support express those opinions uh, and come to that position, right? In a, in a likely enough to have come to those positions. I hold them. I really believe them. But how much should I pat myself on the back for it? Uh, not much, probably. And that can help us reduce our demonization of people who have not come to that position. Right. And to also recognize that we off, we weren't in that position on some issues ourselves. And so there can be a sense in which uh, we can get so self-righteous that we don't even want, we're not even comfortable allowing space for people who don't agree with us yet that will eventually agree with us. Right. If, even if we could know that, that we would treat, if we could, there are people that we will treat like shit who would eventually agree with us given enough time. Right. And we don't know who those people are. And, you know, it's, that's a kind of helpful way to think about it all. I think. Whenever this type of conversation comes up, I always think back to uh, the scene in men in black when uh, I don't even K and J, whatever their names were. I don't know. Tommy, Tommy Lee Jones, Jones and Will Smith, Smith were yeah. sitting on the bench, the park bench. And he's like, you know, this is a terrible paraphrase, but it's basically like, you know, X amount of years ago, everyone knew that the world was flat. Right. He says something else everybody knew and goes, and yesterday you knew the aliens did not exist. And it's just, yeah. you know, I think of the things that I knew 10 years ago when I was getting a Bible degree at Liberty University. And then, I, I mean, I have conversations burned into my brain that I'll for- regret for the rest of my life with, with like the asshole hardline stance that I took on some stuff. And it's yeah. like, that, I think that was 10, that was, that was just over 10 years ago. Uh, you know, that the amount that's nothing. Yeah. It's nothing. <laughs> I'm, I'm very much of this opinion. And this is kind of like, uh, I'm a big Dan Carlin fan. And this is like such a Dan Carlin stance on, on people in general. Uh, we think, especially right now, uh, at this point in our culture, I think, think we view people of the past as almost like a lesser evolutionary uh, point of, of humanity. We think we're totally different than them and, and that morally superior by right almost. And I think you're right in that, you know, when society changes, when economics changes, when people go to war, all of these different things, like every example we've got of, of, you know, times when, when life was very hard for a group of people, a lot of times they revert right back to those ugly, you know, tribalistic behaviors. And there's, if you, you know, if you study any like war scenario further than the, you know, the, the people love World War Two because it's so clearly like they're the bad guys, we're the good guys, we won. It's great, right? It's one of the yeah. It's one of the clearest 
That's why so many movies are about the Nazis, because it's like, you know, yeah. oh, un like unambiguous bad. <laughs> and when you start to look at other wars, it's always less clear than that. I mean, World War One especially is like, who the fuck was the bad Ooh. guy in World War One? Just a bunch of people having alliances with each other for their own reasons, you know? It's just a big human meat grinder. Also, though, heart, World War Two gets complicated when you start thinking about Stalin and how much, uh, how much he, how many people he killed through famine, especially. And Massive he, amount. He ended up killing like three times as many people as Hitler killed. Of course, he had a lot more time to do it. Um, and I'm not equating them, but it's like obviously it, get, it gets complicated pretty quickly. Right, and and I think like if you start looking at some of the like individual actions that the U.S. Uh, Great Britain, all of these different countries took during war. They're things that don't really line up with what we want to think about our side as doing, you know, right. bombing civilian yeah. targets and different yeah, things. Yeah, Dresden, like that. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even like, you know, the most egregious part of Nazism was eugenics, you know, and eugenics played a big role in the United States before World War II. I mean, I would, I might venture to say that the Holocaust is worse than eugenics. Oh, right, right, right. Oh, I forgot about the Holocaust. One of the darkest chapters of the German, yes, of Nazism is their eugenics and their, and their, yeah, their eugenics and their uh, insanely unethical medical practices on, on people with mental illnesses and yeah, all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. And that stuff took place in the U.S. at the same time. Like, I think it was in the 20s. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, where Liberty's at, you know, has like this really dark chapter where they yeah. forcefully sterilized like a huge amount of, uh, you know, mental patients and, yep. and people with disabilities. Yep. And I just don't think I think that humans are are very subject to uh, to nurture and we are not that far removed from, you know, uh, white Southerners in the 1800s, as we would like to yeah. think. One thing that, you know, I'm just looking at the three of us, you know, three, three white men. Sam, you, I'm not sure you may have something else mixed in. I can't really tell. I'm super white. <laughs> okay, super white. Uh, you cannot, you know, I can't always just tell. tan uh, a little bit. You know, the lighting in this room isn't the best. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but like it can feel if you're not a, a white man in the States, I, I recognize how frustrating, uh, it might feel to even hear us talk about these kind of built in psychological limits, uh, as we're describing them or as I'm describing them. And, and you might think like, fuck, like, why does it have to be that way? Why is it so hard for people to change their damn minds so that like, People in my community don't have to die needlessly anymore. And uh, I hear it. I mean, yes, that fucking sucks. I was just talking today to a uh, PCA pastor, ordained pastor who's a nonprofit worker, um, kind of like a, an international aid worker. And we were talking about his issues with progressive Christianity. And we got we we're talking about the Bible. And he was just like, you know. If I if I lose inerrancy of the Bible, uh, my mind is spinning right now. To paraphrase him, as to like all those things, uh, and I my response to him was like, I wish you were right that the Bible was the way you think it is. It would make a a lot of things better, right? And not to say not to equate 
the sort of um, mental calm that comes from religious certainty with physical safety. But the the point just being that like there are things that I also there are things that I also wish were true uh, and they don't yes. appear to be true to me. And the consequences of them not being true are negative you know, to, to, to whatever degree. Um, I don't know. I just I thought of that. It, it sucks. You know, <laughs> I don't uh, I don't I don't share these opinions about human psychology with happiness or glee. Some of them I think are adaptive and helpful in certain ways. As, and I've mentioned that a couple times maybe, but like also would be really great if we weren't that way. If like we could just progress yeah. five times quicker than we do progress, but we don't, it just appears to be the way we are until maybe until technology changes that in, in some meaningful way. And I'm, I'm not sure what that would look like, but that's interesting. Yeah, I agree. We all have self-serving beliefs. And I think the underlying theme with all of the things that we've talked about from tribalism to, um, you know, the, the, the nature of humanity and, and, and even like these self-serving beliefs about things, it's like it, the takeaway here is one, we got to be vigilant about what we think. And we have to be willing to entertain the possibility we might be wrong. I think yeah. number two is it's possible for these people who are so fundamentally different than you to come your way. And I think yeah. that's the hopeful side of it is that there is a big possibility that you can pull some of these, you know, some of the people that are on the opposite end of the spectrum from you politically or, or religiously, they can come your way. You know, and I, I think I that kind of goes you back can't to that. Pull them maybe as much as you might want to, but they can move. And the three of us are examples of that. We've all yes. moved. And we moved. And I love what you said, especially Casey, about like I started trusting different people. I think that's the way most people change. Um, the people, the people that we look up to, that's what changes. And then we change. That's Almost always yeah. how it goes, as far people, as I can tell. People, even if it's like people who you think are just, yeah, people who you think are being honest. I mean, you mentioned Rob Bell earlier, and I, I mean, as with mm -hmm. so many people, like, you know, uh, so, like there's always anyone who's gone through any form of deconstruction from what evangelicalism, like, or I shouldn't even say that inerrancy. Anyone who's deconstructed inerrancy, the yeah. the the first things that are like they they reconsider are like. I mean, it's usually a few heavy hitters, evolution, genocide, hell. I, I don't, I'm sure there's a few Homosexuality. others. Homosexuality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Definitely Divorce, that. And that's maybe. definitely. Complementarianism. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And, um, but you know, hell is one of the ones that like, that's one of the ones that scares people a bit more because even, you know, I was a white evangelical, but I wasn't gay and I wasn't a woman. So I don't know. And I'm not committing yeah. genocide. So it wasn't a whole lot of right, right. shit but that hell, I was trying to unpack. But I but definitely I might didn't want go to go to hell. To hell. <laughs> yes, right. So, you know, <laughs> right. white men who uh, drifted towards reading uh, like stuff from Rob Bell. And, not, and it's not – Rob Bell's not even the only one talking about it. I mean, I read – I mean, even at Liberty, I remember reading books about like it's like four views or five views on this or that. Yeah, the four views books, right. And yeah. those are great. And you're just like – I trust like, but what Rob Bell did in that book, in that most people who criticized it without reading it didn't know it because it wasn't a genius book. It was like an honest book about the fact that 
since the beginning of Christian history, people have thought differently about this concept. And that's yes. what we didn't get. We were told from... I think that's the best argument he makes in that book. Yeah, it's just, it's just his, people have disagreed on exactly. that. Exactly. And you're like, and you trust that he's like, has good intentions and is well-meaning. And I, you know, immediately mm-hmm. I felt that those, I could trust that more than like a dogmatic approach to it, which is what I had been given or that right. like patchwork approach of like, you know, every time you have a question, it feels like, okay, after you ask 100 questions and they like have all these gymnastics to get to the end and get to the answer, it's like gymnastics. Like That's the word for, I, for me. I was, I was thinking as you were talking about this, like eventually when Pete ends would say, I think that this other stuff is mental gymnastics and I need to leave it behind. I reached the point where I was like, yeah, I think it is mental gymnastics. Yeah. And I, and, and him just saying, I can't believe this anymore. Here's some things I believe, but here are a bunch of problems uh, as well as like, yeah, that's where I'm at. I, I yeah. can't, I can't put the genie back in. Uh, but if I could, but if I could say one last thing before we finish up here, it's yeah. just that, um, you know, Casey, have you come to respect me enough that you know where you would go tonight if you died? <laughs> oh boy. That was a joke. <laughs> AC, I'm kidding. I think you scared, you oh, scared no. the hell out of me. No, I, I'm, I'm not trying I'm to a... trigger you. I'm not trying to trigger you. <laughs> He's going to go sorry, home I think the I... sinner's prayer tonight. Maybe you, maybe I... you do have something to work on. I was just joking with you. <laughs> I think I trust you. I don't trust Sam, and I don't think he's a Christian. <laughs> oh shit! Throwing shade. I'll, I'll be. I'll be interested to follow up on that in a future in a, uh, future days. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We really appreciate you. That was a good sharing chat. your uh, your knowledge and your thoughts on the the matter. I know you've been thinking about it for more thoughts than knowledge. I yeah. think, but yeah, I don't know. questions. You yeah. picked up some things along the way. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm still learning, yeah. and I love it. It's very fun. Yeah. Well, yeah, man, it's been a great time, and uh, it was really good to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. 